Good morning. Josh always gives me these wonderful and probably ill-deserved introductions when I preach, but uh, um, it's always a privilege to have the opportunity to share the Word of God, and particularly so, Josh, uh, to be able to help you and Becky, who so diligently work to care for the souls here in this church week after week, to be able to provide you at least a short break. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't think about anything here at all all week, right? <clears throat> Do you realize that the most important work of ministry that any believer can do requires no special gifting, no special training, no ordination, no platform. All that is required to do this work is faith. And that's because the greatest work of ministry that any person can perform is simply to pray. We talk a lot about prayer around here, but have you ever really thought about what is happening when you pray? Think about it. There's no spiritual discipline that is so simple and yet so profound. Small children can utter a simple prayer and it reaches the throne of God Almighty and he is pleased to respond. And yet the greatest theologians have studied it, preached on it, and written libraries full of material on it without exhausting the glory of it. And yet a new convert can pray as powerfully and as sincerely as any of them. Prayer encompasses the simplest expressions of adoration and need, as well as the greatest mysteries of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Through prayer, weak as we are, we are victorious against powers and principalities that would absolutely overwhelm us if we engaged them on any other battlefield. I think without question, prayer is the most meaningful ministry that any believer can perform. And so if you're like me, knowing that or realizing that, you appreciate as much help and as much encouragement as you can get to pray well. And thankfully, there are a lot of examples of, of that in the scripture. And our text this morning, though, is probably the greatest of them all. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 9. <clears throat> but in this text, just to set the stage, we have the great privilege of Jesus, the incarnate word of God, teaching his followers how to pray. After instructing them to avoid showy and meaningless prayers, Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or the evil one. In less than 60 words, Jesus teaches us how to pray and what to pray for. With breathtaking power and simplicity, he gives us a model for how to pray that would transform the prayer life of any person and provide us with a lifetime of rich meditation on our relationship with God. You know, Jesus was once asked, what were the greatest commandments? And he summarized them this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And also love your neighbor as yourself. Our text this morning, this prayer that Jesus teaches, is really an expression of a desire to follow these two commandments given in the form of a prayer. The main point of our text, the main point I think that Jesus is sharing here can be summarized this way. Our main point, we should pray to love God and others the way Jesus does. Let me say that again. This is what our prayer life should be characterized by. We should pray to love God and to love others the way that Jesus does. And so my hope this morning is that each of us would be challenged to grow in our maturity as praying people as we meditate upon what Jesus shares about how we should pray. And so we'll just go section by section and make some observations about what Jesus shares. Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The very first thing we should understand when we look at this model that Jesus gives us is that it is, in fact, a model. He's giving us a model of how to pray. Christian prayer is not incantation. It's not magic. There are no magical words that we can say to manipulate God. While there's certainly nothing wrong with memorizing this prayer and praying it using these exact words, it is intended as a model for prayer. It's a map for prayer. If I want to know how to get from Pittsburgh to New York City, I can get out a map and it will show me the way I should go. But dragging my finger across that map is not the same thing as taking the journey. And so I'm afraid that there have been thousands, millions of people who folded their hands and said these words and never actually prayed this prayer. It's not these specific words that are important, but rather a heart filled with love and dependence upon God that express a desire for the things that these words communicate that is what is important. And so let's look at this. The prayer begins with our Father. As Christians, we're used to talking about God this way, and really because of the influence of Christianity in our culture, even unbelievers frequently refer to all people as God's children. 
So when Jesus says this, it probably doesn't really jump off the page to you. But have you ever really thought about what it means to be invited to address God this way? Jesus is showing us something quite amazing and quite radical by instructing us to address God as Father in our prayers. Nowhere in the Old Testament is there any example of anyone directly addressing God personally as Father. And from what I've read, uh, I'm aware of no examples of that in any Jewish literature prior to the Christian era. Why then does Jesus encourage us to call upon God as Father? God, after all, is a spirit. He's not an engendered creature. He's not a man. What Jesus is telling us is that as we approach God as believers, we approach him as one with whom we have an intimate relationship. God deserves respect and he's holy, but he loves us and is approachable. Although fatherhood in our culture is under constant attack, I would say generally speaking, even now it is still the image of father that is the best illustration of one who is powerful, demands respect, and yet who loves us, protects us, and provides for us. We celebrate these ideal characteristics of fatherhood this very day. I saw the Slim Jims. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> and while no earthly father can perfectly fulfill all of these ideals, God does. So how do we come to have God as Father? The answer, as you might suspect, is the gospel. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, and he's the heir to all things. Whereas we have all sinned, making ourselves the enemies of God and deserving his judgment. But Jesus came as one of us and lived a sinless life and then was crucified, tortured, and died to pay for the sins of all those who would put their faith in him. So we receive the reward he earned with his life, and he endures the punishment that we earned with our life. So through faith, we become united to Christ, washed of our sins, and adopted into the family of God. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The only way we can call God Father and Abba, which is an Aramaic term which means dad, the only way we can do that is if we're adopted through faith in Jesus. We are made sons and daughters of God and heirs of heaven through our union with Christ. 
So we're loved and accepted and can come before God with the same joy and same confidence of any child who runs into the arms of their loving father. Brothers and sisters, how many lifetimes of blessings is there to ponder with Jesus just using this one word, Father, to describe our relationship with God. But I want you to notice something else. This prayer does not begin with my Father or your Father, but our Father. The first part of this prayer that Jesus gives is focused on God and his kingdom. And the second part of the prayer is focused on our individual needs. That's the way it's structured. But as we will see, the entire prayer assumes a connection and a concern for others. God is not my father alone. I have brothers and sisters whom he loves and who love him. There are others who have gifts and talents and wisdom that they use to glorify God and build his kingdom. And there are others with the same fears, anxieties, and needs that I have. When we pray, it's always or should always be with the realization that we have been included by grace in a great family drawn from every tribe and nation down through the centuries. We have more in common with our brothers and sisters in Africa or China than we do with our unbelieving neighbors here in Pittsburgh. Let's look at our Father in heaven, the next part. This loving Father that we're talking about is no, no other than Almighty God. He's enthroned in heaven and sovereign over all things. We do not pray to one who's incapable of answering. Prayer isn't hoping. There is nothing too hard or too wonderful for him to do. And our prayer is a means that he provides of us participating with him in his mighty works. Theologian A.W. Tozer says it this way, <clears throat> whatever God can do, faith can do. And whatever faith can do, prayer can do when it's offered in faith. An invitation to prayer, therefore, is an invitation to omnipotence. For prayer engages the omnipotent God and brings him into our human affairs. Nothing is impossible to the one who prays in faith, just as nothing is impossible with God. It is nothing less than the power of Almighty God who speaks galaxies into existence that we call upon in our prayers. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we can use our prayers to manipulate God. No, he, he is the one who's in heaven, not us. He's on the throne. The ultimate purpose of prayer is not that our will should be done by him, but that his will should be done in us. So prayer is similar to the anchor line on a boat. When you pull tightly on that rope, 
you don't draw the anchor to you, you draw yourself to the anchor. And so God is the anchor. But when we pray, if we pray aligned with his will, which is what this model prayer teaches us to do, then all of the resources of heaven are with us in expressing those desires and in that prayer. Jesus goes on, hallowed be your name. Well, we don't use the word hallowed much anymore, but it essentially means holy, separated, or highly honored. And one of the reasons why it is sinful to take the Lord's name in vain is because it is such a great privilege to approach God in prayer and to call upon his name. So to use a blessing and a privilege of such power on frivolous and vain things is profoundly foolish and disrespectful. I've spent most of my working life in mills, factories, and warehouses. So honestly, coarse language doesn't really phase me much. It doesn't affect me. But when I hear the Lord's name used profanely or carelessly, it bothers me a lot. Because God is worthy of the adoration of every living creature. And he is jealous for his name. And I'm persuaded that this line in this prayer is not part of the address. I don't think Jesus is simply teaching us to merely acknowledge that God is holy in our prayers, but rather that we should pray that he would receive the glory due to him. We are to yearn for God's name to be revered and to be treated as holy. How much time in our prayers do we spend reflecting upon and asking for the name of God to be revered. And yet this is the very first petition that Jesus includes when he teaches us how to pray. How concerned are we about God's glory in our prayers? Do we begin with that? How much of our prayer time is spent giving honor to God and earnestly desiring that others would do the same? If we wish for our prayers to be transformational in us and to change the world, they must be built upon the foundation of a reverence for God and a desire for his glory. Your kingdom come. Jesus then tells us that in addition to that, we should be concerned about the kingdom in our prayers. <clears throat> I've been to many prayer meetings that were what I call organ recitals. Those are prayer meetings where the entire time is spent praying for Bob's heart, Susie's eye, Billy's back, things like that. Now, don't get me wrong. I, those are perfectly legitimate things to pray about. We should pray about those things. We're to pray for all things. Those are legitimate needs. But I want you to notice that when Jesus instructs us to pray, he places a concern for the kingdom ahead of our personal needs. Later in this chapter, in fact, Jesus assures us that if we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all other needs will be provided for. 
And make no mistake, it's his kingdom that we should seek and not our own. I wonder, as I reflect upon my own prayer life, how often the desires that we express in prayer are more about building our own kingdom than his. How often do we hide our pride and our own agendas behind the masks of our prayer? Listen, praying to God to satisfy any desire whose purpose is not to glorify God is like requesting a police escort to rob a bank. It makes no sense. We're to seek the kingdom knowing that this is what will result in our greatest blessing and the greatest blessing of others as well. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying a gospel prayer. We're asking God to turn more hearts to Jesus Christ so that they may also confess him as Lord. And ultimately, we're praying for Jesus Christ to return and establish his kingdom when all evil and all sin and all rebellion against God are eliminated and he rules in love. That's the desire. He goes on. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To pray for God's will to be done perfectly on earth, that's how it's done in heaven, means that we start with our own heart. Do we desire to serve God on earth the way he's served in heaven? As believers, Christ is already our king. So we must always be pursuing his lordship over every area in our lives. We cannot be faithful servants seeking his kingdom if we withhold strongholds for the enemy in our own hearts. A true desire to see the kingdom of heaven extend to earth is a desire to serve him with everything we are, everything we have, and to see others do the same. Now listen, we're incapable of purifying our hearts to be able to do this perfectly. We can't purify our own hearts, much less anyone else's. And that's why, brothers and sisters, it's so important that this request is something we spend time on in prayer. Because all of the other kingdom work that we do, such as evangelizing, witnessing, preaching, teaching, even our personal devotions, every other kingdom work depends on prayer. Because we know that only God can change hearts and produce this desire. Conversions only come through the sovereign grace of God. And only his spirit can produce the love and holiness that this petition expresses. And since this is true, the implications and the importance for prayer should be obvious. We must appeal to God to empower this work. He's the only one who can do it. I'm convinced that the biggest obstacle to our faithfulness as individuals and as a church is not a lack of resources, a lack of training, or even a lack of willingness to do the work. 
I'm convinced that the biggest obstacle to fruitfulness as a church is a lack of prayer. So prayer for the kingdom should be part of our regular practice as, as a church and, and as individuals. We must pray for other churches. We must pray for missionaries. We must pray by name for individuals who we know who need salvation. We must pray that the Lord would provide opportunities for us to share the gospel and to show love to our neighbors. We must pray for revival. And a great opportunity, a very easy opportunity to do this is actually to attend our Wednesday prayer meeting. The focus of those meetings is entirely on praying for these kinds of needs and, and others as well. <clears throat> Jesus goes on, give us this day our daily bread. So in the ancient world, food uh, could not be stored or transported as efficiently um, as it is today. And so also people didn't have refrigerators and grocery stores to be able to store it themselves. So concern about food uh, was part of most people's daily life. And a famine could wipe out an entire region very quickly. And so bread was uh, such an important staple in the diet of folks that it became a symbol for really all of the things that you needed every day. <clears throat> and still today, we use the terms money, we terms dough and bread at, for money, which we use to buy the things that we need. So you can see how powerful that symbol is. And so as a result, in the Bible, bread is a symbol for God's provision for his people. Uh, we see this in the miracles of Jesus, where he multiplies the loaves of bread. We see this uh, probably most clearly in God's faithfulness in providing manna to the Jews as they wandered in the wilderness. There, God provided daily bread, literally, from heaven, every day to sustain them. And they had to depend upon God to do this in order for them to survive. So when Jesus says this, he's not just talking about food. He's teaching us to come before God in a spirit of humble dependence, asking God to provide everything we need to sustain us from day to day. So we don't need to be anxious about what we'll eat or drink or about what we will wear because our Father knows that we need these things. <clears throat> but it's for our own good that Jesus teaches us to acknowledge our dependence upon God for them. So I fear it's just too easy, especially here where we live in this day and age, to think it's our own power and strength that produces these things that we enjoy. We take them for granted. But Jesus wants us to recognize our dependence upon God for all these things that we need every day. So we should pray specifically for what we need. Now look, we're not told to pray for wealth or prosperity. It's not what he tells us to pray for. We're not even told to pray for what we think we might need in the future. In this, in this prayer, he tells us to pray that God would sustain us for this day. He goes on, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Here, Jesus uses the word debt to refer to sins, 
Jesus is telling us to ask for forgiveness when we pray. He's saying we need forgiveness just like we need bread. Just like we have physical needs, we have spiritual needs. And our greatest need is fellowship with God. And when we sin, it disrupts that fellowship with God. And that's why the forgiveness of sin, even in the life of a believer, is such an urgent need. We need forgiveness more than we need anything else. And only God can ultimately forgive our sins. But thankfully, God is not reluctant to do that. He invites us to seek it, and he's glorified in granting it. But I want you to notice that Jesus adds an additional description to this one. We ask forgiveness just as we have also forgiven those who sinned against us. In fact, in the verse immediately after this model prayer, Jesus connects the forgiveness of our sins to our willingness to forgive others. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, Jesus is not adding works as a requirement for forgiveness. What he's showing us here is what faith looks like. If we're unwilling to forgive those who have sinned against us, it's an indication that we have not truly understood our own desperate need for forgiveness. We show in that that we, have a, that we lack the very kind of faith and repentance that would be necessary for our own sins to be forgiven. If we as sinners, think about this, if we as sinners are unwilling to forgive somebody or overlook an offense against us, then we cannot possibly be sincere in asking a holy God to forgive us of the sins we've committed against him. The two things just don't, can't go together. So that's what Jesus is showing us. And so our eagerness for mercy and grace has to extend beyond ourselves. Whenever we pray for God's forgiveness, we should pause and consider our own heart towards others. Our prayer should be an occasion for reflecting on how we love others as we love ourselves. Jesus continues, lead us not into temptation. Notice that Jesus teaches that not only are we to pray for forgiveness, but also deliverance from sin. It should be the desire of our hearts to avoid sin so much that we avoid situations where we will be tempted to sin as much as we can control that. I'm reminded of the story of a little boy named Jimmy who loved cookies. <laughs> he would always pull up a chair to the counter and reach in and steal cookies out of the cookie jar. So his mother eventually moved the cookie jar into the pantry so he could no longer do that. And one day it had been a while since she'd seen him. And so she calls out, Jimmy, where are you? And uh, he replies, I'm in the pantry. 
she says, what are you doing in there? And he thinks about it for a second and replies, resisting temptation. Well, listen, the pantry is not the place to resist temptation. <laughs> so we have to always be on guard about overconfidence, spiritually speaking. One of the most foolish things we can say or think regarding any particular sin is that would never happen to me. I would never fall into that. We need God's help to persevere. Jesus wants us to recognize that it's because of God's mercy and strength that we can stand firm. Our love for God should be so strong and our hate for sinning should be so strong and horrify us so much that asking God's mercy to help us avoid even temptation is part of our prayer. Now look, temptation itself is not sin. Jesus was tempted and he never sinned. Temptation becomes sin when we pursue the evil desires that are activated by that temptation. And when we sin, we don't just harm ourselves. We offend God, kill our assurance and joy, and all sin involves in some way victimizing others. How much time do we spend in our prayers proactively praying for God's mercy in helping us avoid situations where we are under pressure to stumble? It's wise to do so. And Jesus continues, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is not talking here about the generally bad stuff that happens to us. He's telling us that in addition to our own weaknesses, we have to be praying about something else as well. We not only need God's help in battling sin, the flesh, and the world, but we should seek his protection from our enemy, the devil. He is talking here about deliverance from Satan. And although the ESV follows the traditional English translation, delivers from evil, it, the Greek text includes a modifying article. And so a clearer translation of this would be, deliver us from the evil one. And I think that makes an important difference as we think about what he's saying here. As Greek New Testament scholar Daniel Wallace says, the father does not always keep his children out of danger, disasters, or the ugliness of the world. In short, he does not always deliver us from evil, but he does deliver us always from the evil one. The text is not teaching that God will make our lives a rose garden, but that he will protect us from the evil one, the devil himself. Jesus wants us to recognize that in the battle against sin, we are up against powerful spiritual enemies. And you know, I've seen so many believers who are just cavalier about Satan as if he's no threat whatsoever or can be easily dismissed by saying the right words. It's true that if we are in Christ, we do not need to fear Satan. But that's because of Christ's strength, not ours. 
it's foolish, listen, it is foolish to underestimate anybody who is bent on your destruction. Somebody's trying to kill you, don't underestimate that person. Especially someone as powerful as Satan. He has had a lot of practice and he's very effective at what he does. And so again, Jesus doesn't want us to be afraid, but he does tell us to be aware. Be aware of Satan when we pray. It's a spiritual reality that we have to be aware of. Spiritual warfare is a serious thing. We're surrounded by a great unseen realm, and this world is a war zone. The decisive battle has been won at the cross. We know that Satan cannot win. He's defeated. But the war is not over. We cannot neglect our duty to be diligent and aware of his devices. As we reflect upon all that Jesus teaches here, I want to summarize what we've seen. If we wish to pray well, we don't need fancy words. We don't need rituals. We need hearts transformed by the desire to love God and serve him with all our hearts and to love our neighbors in a way that can only come from him. And prayer is offered as both a means to build and a result of that kind of love. In short, when we pray, we should pray to love God and others the way Jesus does. And this should be an encouragement to us because you say, well, how can I pray that way? And the answer is, ask God in faith. He is the reason that you'll be able to pray this way. So I want to end the message this morning with the words of a teacher whose name is lost to history. I don't remember who said this. <clears throat> we cannot say our if we live only for ourselves. We cannot say father if we don't strive each day to act like his child. We cannot say who is in heaven if we're laying up no treasure there. We cannot say, hallowed be your name, if we are not striving for holiness. We cannot say, your kingdom come, if we are not working to see it arrive. We cannot say, your will be done, if we are disobedient to his word. We cannot say, on earth as in heaven, if we don't serve him here and now. We cannot say, give us this day our daily bread if we're dishonest or prideful. We cannot say, forgive us our debts if we harbor a grudge against anyone. We cannot say, lead us not into temptation if we deliberately place ourselves in its path. We cannot say, deliver us from the evil one if we do not put on the whole armor of God. But praise God that in Christ, he offers us the mercy and the grace to do all of these things. Amen? Amen. Amen.